Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. How you doing, everybody? As I speak, it's Friday, July 23rd, 2021. The headlines, this headline is really appropriate to what we're going to be discussing. It's from today's Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered as always. Thank you, Bright One. Quote, details revealed on alleged assault. As lawsuits proceed, GM says process must play out before team comments about ex-coach. Yes, the team in question, the Chicago Blackhawks, the hockey team in Chicago. I'm not a huge Blackhawks fan. But the whole city of Chicago is riveted by the Blackhawks uh, in 2020, 2010 when they won the Stanley Cup. And uh, we haven't talked about this case that much. I thought it would be a good idea to bring it up uh, in the discussion we're about to have with this distinguished guest. And as I always do with bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, take it away. I'm so distinguished. That's, that's a, nice, a nice word that doesn't often get applied to me. Hey, Ben, it's me, Joanna Klonsky, uh, here for your not-so-regular-anymore segment on the creeps of the world, the creep report. Glad to be back. Yeah, Joanna Klonsky, political strategist, uh, political operative, uh, and uh, works from other, among other people, my dear friend Lori Lightfoot, uh, but is a, an old friend of mine. I've known Joanna longer than Lori Lightfoot knew her. Uh, and uh, Joanna is a regular. Uh, every time I've had a radio, since I had a radio show, since I got fired from the radio, since I've done a podcast, I always say this, uh, Joanna Klonsky has been a guest on my show. And we, we established uh, a show called The Creep Report which was dedicated to the notion of men behaving badly, particularly uh, in the workplace uh, with uh, sexual harassment, uh, lawsuits, uh, and accusations fired up. But we're going to broaden uh, this today's Creep Report, uh, Joanna, to talk about toxic workplaces in general, uh, and then we'll get around to uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. We have three topics, so I'm going to give them up front, Joanna, so everybody knows what we're going to talk about so we don't forget. Uh, if we get too way late on one topic, ESPN, which how they handled Rachel Nichols uh, and the tape, uh, the Washington Post. This is a story that is breaking as we speak. Uh, Felicia Sanmez, a former uh, reporter, is suing the Post. And then the Blackhawks. I already alluded to them. We'll, we'll do them uh, last. Chicago Blackhawks and this debacle that they have created out of uh, alleged sexual assault. Let's start with ESPN first. This is a story that you and I have been following. Uh, we've been texting each other about for some time. I've talked about it on the show already. Uh, Joanna, why don't you do a little summary of what went down? Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor, go ahead. Yeah, it's not an easy story to summarize. So for those who aren't necessarily avid NBA watchers as you and I are, Ben, um, a woman named Rachel Nichols, who was the sideline reporter um, at uh, at ESPN on NBA games. Um, it turns out a year ago, last year, 
accidentally was recorded, was caught on sort of a hot mic saying some disparaging comments about her colleague, Maria Taylor, um, who is a, a black woman. Um, essentially, she was talking to Adam Mendelson. Adam Mendelson is the publicist or public relations advisor for LeBron James, very powerful person behind the scenes figure around NBA world. And it had come, they were discussing the fact that ESPN was interested in taking uh, Rachel Nichols, who's white, off the NBA sideline reporting job and instead putting in Maria Taylor, who again is black. Um, so she got caught on the hot mic saying the following. I wish Maria Taylor all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball. If you need to give her more things to do because you're feeling pressure about your crappy long-term record on diversity, which, by the way, I know personally from the female side of it, like, go for it. Just find it somewhere else. You're not going to find it from me or taking my thing away. To which uh, Adam Mendelson responded and gave her some advice about how to frame the situation um, basically as ESPN, he was giving her PR advice about how to put pressure on ESPN to not take Rachel Nichols off the sideline and instead give that role to Maria Taylor. He recommended to Rachel Nichols on this recording that she framed the situation as ESPN pitting two women against one another. Um, and that this being, he said, the quote is about how it's just so very white male of them to turn two women on each other to compete over the one spot that they're dangling over them. Um, so, okay, this set off kind of a meltdown, uh, 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 rightfully so. Obviously, her comments are quite offensive. Adam Mendelson, by the way, was also caught on the same hot mic saying, I'm exhausted between Me Too and Black Lives Matter. I got nothing left. This is obviously a white man speaking, um, which, again, implies that uh, this scarcity mentality that, you know, white people are, or white men are being somehow under attack by these movements that were taking place. Remember, this is last summer um, amid the sort of racial reckoning that the country was going through after the murder of George Floyd um, and the Me Too movement, which had been brewing for some years. So all of this set off a firestorm um, internally at ESPN at the time, but the story only broke in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. So a year later, the story broke um, and in response, Rachel Nichols was taken off that sideline job and replaced with a different black woman reporter, um, not Maria Taylor. Um, Rachel Nichols issued an apology. Um, some said that apology left a lot to be desired. Adam Mendelson similarly issued an apology. Um, but many still feel that this wasn't handled right. Uh, there was a lot left to be desired by the PR response of ESPN, by the sub, not just PR, but the substantive response of ESPN, um, that Rachel Nichols still doesn't seem to get it. And there's so many layers to this story, Ben, that I still don't think I've recapped it that well. <laughs> we did, did a I pretty mean? good job. Uh, and <laughs> and I just want to uh, uh, assert one more time uh, what uh, Joanna said. The recording took place a year ago. It was just leaked the New York Times just broke the story uh, within the last couple of weeks. So the events we're talking about took place a year ago, but the fallout is happening right now. And I, I, I'll give you my reaction, Joanna, and then you come back with yours. Uh, there, it, it, there's so much going on in uh, this particular episode. White fragility, uh, people saying things behind other people's backs, uh, never think they were getting caught. The whole issue of whether it's ethical to have a recording of somebody that they they're not aware existing and using it against them. New York Times, just saying. Um, and uh, there's, so there's a lot of different places you could take this. But you know, more and more, I've been thinking about it. And this is me speaking, not Joanne. I'm going to get your thoughts after this, Joanne. ESPN really, they suck. I mean. I don't know how else to say it, Joanna. What a terrible way. I'm just thinking about, like, just to, like you're the coach, and there's dissension uh, in your team, you know, and, and two key players in your team are, are, are fighting. And uh, one went too far and really insulted the other. You, you're like the leader. You follow what I'm saying, ESPN? You got to, 
you can't just ignore it for a year. That's what they did. They just ignore it. And they, they, the one person who got in trouble was the ESPN employee who uh, apparently took the, the recording and gave it to let Maria Taylor know about it. She got punished. That's it? That's right. how you're handling this? Who, by it, the way, is, is also a black woman, the, the, the staff member who did that, who got punished, yes. is also a black woman. So my general thought is this is abomination. Don't you agree that like, corporations can learn from this about how to deal with problems in the workplace? Go ahead. Yeah. So ESPN has a reputation for being extremely problematic on these issues. And I think ESPN, more than almost any other major mainstream network, um, has, a, to me, a particular obligation to get this right because they have traded on and profited so profoundly by the work of Black folks in America, whether it's in sports or from their own staff, um, they trade on Black culture um, expressly, uh, yet they can't seem to get this right. Many of their current and former Black staff have spoken out about what a toxic work environment it is, most probably notably Jamel Hill, who's the famous, uh, really well-respected Black woman reporter who left ESPN a few years ago and has talked publicly about the, the really terrible dynamics in that workplace. Um, and so now, one thing that I guess I didn't mention is just a couple of days ago, the day after the NBA finals wrapped up and the Milwaukee Bucks won the championship, which we should probably talk about as well, Maria Taylor, who is the Black woman reporter who Rachel Nichols was sort of disparaging here, announced that she was leaving the network. Um, it seems like they have a terrible track record on addressing these issues. and this case is case in point. They didn't handle it right at the time. Once it became public and they were publicly embarrassed about it, then they started trying to respond. Um, the response seems to have not land. They didn't stick the landing. And I think it's because there it doesn't appear to be the case that they are authentically, genuinely trying to fix the problem. And so they have a lot more work to do. But I would suggest to them, if I was giving them advice, that they start, first and foremost, by listening to the Black members of their team and former members of the team, and especially the Black women, who have been banging the drum and saying, hey, this isn't okay for literal years now, or they're going to keep stepping in the same pothole over and over again. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I, I guess they have to take seriously, which they probably don't as a culture, the uh, what's at the heart of this dispute, well, there's a lot of things at, in this dispute, but the notion that black people who've achieved a certain success in, in this particular case, broadcasting, have achieved that success because it's a gift to them because the, the company wants to look good on affirmative action. And I... I think corporations have to take serious this notion. They're like, and and this is deep, Joanna. And I say this as an old white guy's been around listening to this kind of this kind of talk since the seventies, since the before you were born, Joanna. I've heard <laughs> it's like white yeah. people didn't get into a college. It's like, well, my SATs right. were higher than the black guy. I I would have gotten in if I were black. White people are always feeling sorry for themselves when they see a black person promoted over something that they wanted. It's like, no, 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 that was my job. And I think when you put that in a work environment, your job as the, and I say this as a guy who's never run a work environment, I just say some guy in his <laughs> attic talking on a microphone, your job is to try, you have to reconcile these things. You can't just let these attitudes fester and become cancerous. This is my personal belief. What's your response to that? Yeah, I agree with you. The other thing I'll say about this is I think Jamel Hill worded two things, recapped two things you just said really well. One, this is what she said in the LA Times a couple of days ago. I think it was a couple of days ago. Um, excuse me. Jamel Hill said, ESPN has a consistent history of undervaluing black talent. This isn't a Rachel, Rachel versus Maria story. In other words, Rachel Nichols versus Maria Taylor. This is a story about why they didn't value Maria enough to allow her to take full ownership of the job. Um, Jamel says, ESPN collects black faces, but it doesn't see, but it seems like when those black faces become black voices, it's a problem. 
so just to go back to what we were saying about what ESPN needs to do differently, this is a values question for them. But the other thing she said that I really think nails it, like I said last summer, when all these corporations and companies were putting out these we support black people tweets, watch what they do, not what they say. And so to go back to ESPN, they put out the same feel good statements about their values that every other major corporation in America put out last summer amid the civil uprising that we saw. Are they living it out? No, they clearly are not. The second thing, just to go back to your earlier point, is that what this reinforced, you know, people of color often voice concern that white people and even and maybe especially progressive white people talk differently behind to each other behind closed doors than they do in public. And that same thing goes for the ESPN corporate leadership. And this just reinforces that 100%. Yes, she was recorded. Yes, they were sort of recorded accidentally. It was it was shared. Um, they didn't know anyone was listening. And, and we can talk about the ethics of, of what to do in that situation. But the fact of the matter is they were talking very bluntly to each other because they felt comfortable saying what they really felt and what they really thought. And their message behind the scenes was very different from what they might have said publicly as white people talking to each other. I don't know about you, Ben. I've experienced this where white people think that because I'm white, they can say what they really think to me. And sometimes those views are extremely racially problematic and sometimes overtly racist. And so what do, what is our obligation? I think for us, yeah, you don't run, run a workplace. I am not like in charge of a huge staff of you know, a corporation or anything like that. But I think white people also have to hold ourselves to account. Well, how, what do you do in these private conversations if somebody comes to you with something like this? Adam Mendelson clearly knows what the right thing to say in the situation is because his statement was um, exactly, he said all the right things in his statement, in his apology statement. He says, um, I made a stupid, careless comment rooted in privilege and I'm sincerely sorry. I shouldn't have said it or even thought it. I work to support these movements and know that the people affected by these issues never get to be exhausted or have nothing left. I have to continue to check my privilege and work to be a better ally. Like that's all the right things that he should have said, you know? So he knew that what he was saying was wrong behind closed doors. And I just think that reinforces this um, general perception that is right, that white folks talk differently behind closed doors than they do in public about these issues. Well, first of all, I'll broaden it. Everybody talks differently in private than they do in public. Absolutely everybody. Okay. And I've been privy to all kinds of private conversations from all kinds of public people. (laughs) And you always have to take. Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of my job, you know? And uh, so the thing is, is that you always, I mean, putting aside the specifics of this issue, I think as a general rule of thumb, you always have to, in a private conversation, put just like put a little salt on it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, so in this particular case, they're venting. All right. Now, I, I don't know what game Adam, Adam Mendelson is playing with, uh, with Rachel's. I, I don't know these, this, this, this world, Joanna, I don't know like what Adam Mendelson, why is who is he that he's even talking to Rachel Nichols? And like, does she think that Adam Mendelson can make a phone call to ESPN and somehow or other rectify this? I have no idea what kind of Machiavellian games are going on here. Uh, but I just, it just in general, people, one of the fa- favorite things is, is like when you talk to somebody and they're telling you, recounting a conversation they have with somebody else. And if like it's contentious and they're always going to. So then I told him, uh uh-uh. uh. Da 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 da. It's like everybody's so much tougher. It's never what they re- actually said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think about that because I do that too. And I'm really going to try. I'm working. Here's my pledge to you, Joanne. I'm really going to try not to do that anymore because I'm not that tough. I, I'm not that big a badass to tell people this is what I really told her. What I. Uh, so I don't know. That's that was just my reaction. Um, but what do you think was going on with Adam Mendelson and Rachel Nichols in that conversation? Well, look, for those who don't, some of your listeners might not know who I am, but I'm a publicist myself. And so I can understand that she may have been going to Adam Mendelson, who's a a influential public relations uh, advisor. I mean, if you have LeBron James as a client, that's pretty much, you know, the whole ballgame. 
you know, LeBron, if you need any help, feel free to call me up. My number's on the <laughs> internet, but, but so very often, you know, even in, in my much, much, you know, lower on the food chain role, folks will call me off the record for advice and how to handle a complicated situation. And it seems to me that that's what role Adam was playing. He's got relationships with all sorts of members of the sports media world. Um, that's his job. And sometimes they talk off the record and they vent and they process and that's normal. Um, which is why I think some folks have, have raised questions about, well, what do you do if you're caught on a recording or you're surreptitiously recorded or you're accidentally recorded? Um, this is happening more and more in our society because we're all around recording devices all of the time now, which didn't used to be true. So we're seeing lots of sort of these hot mic incidents. Um, and I think we can all understand that sometimes we all talk and say stuff that's a little more uh, unpolished privately than we would if we knew we were being recorded. But this is um, problematic in a really particular way, also considering what was happening in the world at the time. Um, the fact, and it's revealing because of what happened, because it was happening behind closed doors and because they were talking like this to one another. Um, so I think one of the more interesting things is that we spend a lot of time talking about Rachel and Adam's comments to one another on this private conversation that came out. Um, and in a way, it feels like it's become so much about them and really specifically about Rachel Nichols. I think Adam Mendelson has in a lot of ways gotten uh, much less heat than Rachel did. And we can talk about the reasons why. Some of which is because she's a forward-facing famous person who's on TV all the time. Some of which is because she's a woman. Um, and so that's an interesting other dynamic. But uh, all along, it feels like ESPN, because it's a nameless, faceless, it's not nameless, but it's not a person that we can think about and focus our energy on, hasn't had to endure the same level of pressure around this, this moment. Now, to their credit, they moved her off the sideline and moved in Malika Andrews, who is awesome and extremely talented, and by the way, has some Chicago connection. Um, but they didn't do it for a year until they were publicly called out. Yeah, yeah no. I, I, I'm, when I, if I had a rank, who blew this the most? Uh, do a ranking. One of my favorites. ESPN is by far. And I, and I'll just we'll close it by where we began it. There was trouble in paradise. They knew it. They ignored it. They allowed it to fester. They obviously don't care about their employees. They obviously don't care about doing whatever they can to promote better race relations. They the proof's in the pudding. I mean, they didn't do anything for a year until the New York Times blew to revealed it. So my walk away, feel free to disagree with me. I see you're already getting ready to disagree with me. Jordan, I always is do. that ESPN yeah. doesn't care. Go ahead. I don't. I I don't know how to how to whether how to say or whether it matters whether a corporation cares or what they care about. What I want to know is what pressure points they're responsive to and whether they're smart enough to get out ahead of something. What I can what I think is it's not about what I don't really care if they care. They're a corporation. <laughs> Are they doing like I don't I don't know about their feelings, but I want them to do the right thing. Um, and it seems to me that what happened here, which is so often the case in these moments is that they were scared of getting sued by Rachel Nichols, and so they didn't take action until they were forced. Um, so here we are. I, they didn't handle it right, that's for sure. I think there's probably people there who do care about the right things and have the right feelings, which is why so much stuff leaked from this. But the other thing, last, last thing that we should have mentioned earlier, is that not too long before this story broke in the New York Times, uh, basically a hit piece leaked on Maria Taylor making her seem like she was a diva and she was demanding so much money in her contract negotiations. And that also came out of ESPN leadership because who else would have known about it and who else would have done it in a way to inoculate against what, what the impending New York Times story that only some people knew was coming. And so that to me is one of the most revealing things about, yes, you're right. What do we know about ESPN leadership's values? That says a lot, but um, ESPN leadership is like such a nebulous term. Who even are these people? And wh who are we talking about? There's probably some folks in there who want to do the right thing. And I hope they win this 
internal battle for the heart and soul of the corporation. Uh, fair enough. And you're right. I shouldn't say ESPN. I say whoever the, the big shots are that call the shots at ESPN, they're the ones. Right. You're right. And I they're don't even missing, know enough they, about They botched this. this. Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, that's kind of botched it. That's a kind way of saying it, but uh, uh, we both agree they, they're number one handling it the wrong. And good luck to everybody involved. Maria Taylor, Rachel Nichols. I'm rooting for uh, Maria Ta- Taylor and, and Malika Andrews. How about that? Okay, there we go. <laughs> Adam Mendelssohn's not getting a lot of love. <laughs> Come on, Adam Mendelssohn. He's going to be okay in the end. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm not I'm worried sure about him. Land. His thing about I'm an ally. Oh, yeah, okay. I got privilege. Oh my God! Please, yeah, right? Oh right. God! All right, enough on that. Let's move on to the Washington Post. Uh, this, this speaking of uh, institutions, media institutions handling things poorly. Yeah, Joanna, this wow! I you were the one who uh, alerted me to this story today before about a couple hours ago, and then. I did the deep dive and it brought back a lot of memories because this is an ongoing uh, pr- problematic uh, issue with the Washington Post and Felisa Sanmez, uh, who is a reporter for the Post. So why don't you, uh, again, do one of your famous Joanna uh, summaries of what this case involves? <laughs> yeah, this story is a hot mess. And I have kind of been following along with her for a few years now because this has been brewing for a, a bit. Um, Washington Post politics reporter Felicia Sanmez sued the newspaper today and several of its editors for um, discrimination as a victim of sexual assault. Uh, she, she came forward um, in September 18th about sexual assault that she endured while in China. Um, she was sexually assaulted by, another, by an LA Times journalist who later resigned. So she spoke publicly about her experience. This was amid sort of that Me Too mo- movement um, apex. Uh, later, she says the Post banned her from reporting about Christine Blasey Ford's um, allegations against who is now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, which we all unfortunately remember that moment in American history. Um, but they banned her because she says the Post managing editor, whose name is Cameron Barr, said she had, quote, taken a side on the issue of sexual assault. Uh, by talking about her own experience publicly. So that really just blew my mind. Like, I'm sorry, is there a side one can take on the issue of sexual assault? Apparently, according to Washington Post editorial team, there is. Um, She said the ban was later extended so she could not cover sexual assault at all and that she was frequently frequently taken off of stories. Um, This first came onto my radar and then I suspect it may have come onto yours. She was put on leave in January 2020 after she tweeted a link to a story um, about the rape allegations against Kobe Bryant after he died. Um, So, I mean, that was one of those moments where a lot of people were outraged that that happened. And eventually the Post had to back down and and let her go back to work. So there's a lot here. There's more to the story, but that's my quick, quickest possible summary that I can offer. No, that was a good job one more time of uh, summarizing. And um, so let's just uh, deal with this first matter. So Felicia Sanmez uh, has alleged that she was sexually assaulted. And the Washington Post uses that as a pretext to say uh, that she is uh, unfit to cover other matters other accusations of sexual assault. And so she has a side in it. And I'm like, wow. Uh, I mean, this gets into my whole issue of objectivity, the, the, the bizarre notion of what objectivity is. It's that, that's a whole other larger story. Joanna, you know how objective, like this notion that there's this pure objective existence that some reporters have. Um, which is, in my humble opinion, is complete fraud. Fraud because who is completely void of any feelings at all? That we we all bring some prejudice to it, but in particular, the notion that because you have claimed that you were the victim of sexual assault, you're unfit to write about this. I could make the compelling argument that would make you even more 
of a better reporter on the matter. You know what I mean? You know a little something about it. You got empathy with uh, other victims. It's such a bizarre and twisted way of looking at objectivity. I'm not quite sure where the Washington Post is coming from. Help me out, Joanna. No, I mean, look, you're the journalist, Ben, not me. I I agree with you. But furthermore, if you're going to say that um, a woman who has spoken out against about her, her own sexual experiencing sexually assaulted is biased and therefore cannot cover other sexual assault, including allegations against a potential Supreme court justice or Kobe frickin Bryant. Ah, the logic there is just so sideways. I don't even really know where to begin. Um, it, a, it, it, of course, creates a chilling effect that discourages women from coming forward about their sexual um, assault. Uh, this is a situation where she bravely came forward and spoke out about her alleged sexual assault, but also, um, you know, in a moment where every time someone came forward during, if you recall, during that period, 2018, 2019, and spoke out, it created space for other women to do so as well. So one, it, it created a uh, chilling effect or disincentive on women to come forward once again to like, if we think that women can take a side or anybody can take a side um, on being pro or against sexual assault, like, I don't even know what to say or how to explain how problematic that is. I don't think I even have to. I think everybody should understand how deeply offensive that is, but also just Again, like the boys club, the white boys club of legacy journalism leadership in so many spaces, this is really um, the culture that so many women and especially women of color in these spaces are up against. Um, The idea that this incredibly well-respected national politics reporter at the Washington Post wouldn't be able to effectively and um, ethically cover uh, Christine Blasey Ford's allegations because she herself had been sexually assaulted is just mind blowing to me. Um, I hope this is a big wake up call for the leadership at the Washington Post, but like ESPN, it's time to get it together, guys. Yeah, uh, like ESPN, time to get it together. Well, there's a lawsuit, uh, so uh, they're not commenting. So we'll, I don't know what the, the, the end result will be at the Washington Post, but I, I do hope. Uh, that the individuals and 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 I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. I just keep blindly saying Washington Post, ESPN. There are individuals. Sure, there who are make people. Right. There are people uh, who run these organizations, and I don't know who they are because I'm not part of that culture. So, well, here's uh, the thing: at the Washington yeah. Post, we do know who they are because she's filed a lawsuit where she names who said some of these really offensive things to her. So that's notable. I think people should read the article and, and remember that it's unlike ESPN where it's a little more, it's a little more difficult to discern who, who's actually responsible. The Washington Post, we can see it. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that remember that these, these outlets become a filter through which we learn and understand about what's going on. So if everything is going through the filter of these largely white male editors, who understand the world in this way, it's going to influence how all of us understand the world. And that is problematic unto itself. Yeah. All right. We'll be following this one. I'm uh, really curious how this lawsuit is uh, going to result. And I do remember it's, I mean, I'm going to move on, but I do remember the, uh, the Kobe tweet. It came, it, that was a really yeah. challenging moment because she tweeted it out yeah. it, right in the middle of it. Uh, right. Right in the, like within 24 hours and Kobe had died and the feelings like Kobe fans and I put myself in that category, even though I always rooted against him. Uh, we were just, (laughs) it was just really difficult moment. Yeah. I can't stand the Lakers. You know that Joanna. And, and, uh, (laughs) but I respect greatness and he was one of the greatest and, uh, Please don't take it wrong, Klonsky family. That's all from LA, but I cannot stand the Lakers. I know. And, <laughs> I was going to say, Dodgers as you know, too. I was raised to love the Lakers, <laughs> but yes. Well, well, I agree with you. I I grappled with this as well. I was a huge Kobe Bryant fan, and and she did. She tweeted it that within hours of his death, and she said she received ten thousand death threats immediately um, because I think people were in shock, people were mourning, and everyone had known about those 
rape allegations for um, nearly 20 years. And so I think some of it was like almost forgotten already. Um, and people, were, people go in, you know, people go into this, like, don't speak ill of the dead mode, but she's a reporter. Um, and so, and, and the response from the Washington Post was basic was to say, you're, uh, Felicia, you're hurting the newspaper. Stop tweeting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was Marty Baron actually said that who was at the time, the publisher of the post ridiculous comment. Right. Uh, I, I, re- I actually comment. do remember it's a ridiculous comment. And again, I say this as a person who I did not like her tweet. I'm going to be honest with you because I was mourning Kobe's death and, uh, I did not like her tweet, but at the same time, I'm like, give me a break, Washington Post. You want your reporters to get all like their little tweets, get the retweeted, and that's a big deal in your little industry. <laughs> you know, Twitter yeah. matters to yeah. you. And so she had that uh, journalistic instinct. She went for it, got it. She got what you want, right? She got attention. And and then all of a sudden, oh, no, you're hurting our newspaper. Like what you're doing to Felicia Sanmez isn't hurting your newspaper. Right. And, and no matter how anyone felt about the tweet, it's not her job to please us or to say stuff that we, that makes us feel good. She's a reporter and she was stating facts. It might've felt uh, insensitive or, or challenging in that moment, but that's not her problem. It's her job to tell the truth and state facts. Come what may. Washington Post looked really, really bad at that moment. Awful. All right. Speaking of institutions that look really, really bad, we'll close. Speaking of a hot home. mess. Yeah, hot mess. Unbelievable. And this Chicago Blackhawks story, uh, I'm going to bring Dave McKinney from BEZ on. He'll be coming on to take a deeper dive uh, soon. He's been covering this. He's one of the reporters in Chicago. He's done some great reporting this. on this. Yes, he has. And uh, shout out to him. Uh, the, this is a story, as, as I may have I've said uh, on several shows, has been largely uh, posted on the sports section. It hasn't really had much coverage on the news sections. And one thing I've learned uh, from doing a podcast in Chicago for the last few years is that there's a sharp divide between people who read the news section and people who only read the sports section uh, or vice versa. So like news section people have really no clue about what's going on in the sports section and sports section. People don't really pay attention. Don't really know what's going on in the news section. And which is a shame because this is a very important story on many fronts, uh, having to do with creepy behavior to put it mildly. So Joanna, you are on a roll. I'm going to allow you one more time to do <laughs> famous Joanna. Cons- oh man. Uh, concise, uh, summaries. If you, if, of this one. If not, if you want to take a pass, I'll do it, but uh, go ahead give it a shot. No, I'll do my best. This is an ugly one. And, and I will also say, um, gosh, I'm not even sure where to begin on this one, but I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. So, um, what has come out is, um, that in 2000, I think it's 2010, I'm pulling up the details now. Um, a former video coach for the Chicago Blackhawks named Bradley Aldrich, um, allegedly uh, sexually assaulted um, at least, it seems like at least one player, possibly more. Um, and so it looks like this. Um, sorry, forgive me, because this is like so complicated that I want to get it right. Um, sounds like Aldrich sent harassing text messages to the player in question, promising coaching advice and invited him to come go over some game clips. Remember, he's a video coach. If he came to Eldridge's apartment for dinner, when the player, um, who by the way, is a male player for the Blackhawks, um, showed up to Eldridge's apartment, he allegedly turned on porn, porn and started to masturbate in front of the guy. Um, the plaintiff, who he's a plaintiff because he's now sued, um, attempted to leave the apartment, but Aldrich blocked the door grabbed a baseball bat and began physically threatening the plaintiff. It was like a, one of those souvenir bats. So it's a little bit small, but uh, threatening him with the bat uh, and brandished it, verbally threatened him and said that he would ruin the plaintiff, the individual player financially and destroy his career if he didn't engage in non-consensual activity. This is according to legal proceeding documents. Um, so the allegations against Aldridge in the legal document include masturbating in front of him, forcibly touching him, and other lewd and lavicious 
I don't even know if I said that word right, conduct until Aldrich ejaculated on the plaintiff while the plaintiff was paralyzed with fear. I'm reading to you, obviously. Um, so the Hawks organization has filed a motion to dismiss, has filed a motion to dismiss in the lawsuit. And there's also another lawsuit as well related to this case. Um, this will not come as any big surprise to anyone, but it turns out that Aldrich has allegations, sexual um, misconduct and assault allegations against him in other states as well. And is even on the Michigan sex offender registry. Um, so there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And uh, this story is a complicated one. Uh, you did. A very, yeah. I don't know uh, if I got another, that all right. <laughs> I, I, I'll give you a B plus on that one. Uh, A's okay. the, but that was, was a tough a one. I threw it at you. Uh, but you did a good job. No, and so uh, Aldrich, uh, he had this incident. Let's just call it that, his incident with the Blackhawks in 2010. Uh, and the Blackhawk management allegedly knew about it. Uh, right. It was not uh, a, a secret. Uh, and uh, they chose not to take any punitive actions against Aldrich. They chose essentially not, as far as I could tell, to do any kind of substantive investigation of it. Uh, and Aldrich left the Blackhawks soon thereafter, and the Blackhawks wrote him a letter of recommendation, which did not in any way mention uh, this matter. Uh, and so further on down the road, Aldrich uh, was accused of sexual harassment. Uh, boy, this is so sound like a familiar story, huh, Joanna? Man, uh, and, right? subse and subsequently, the Blackhawks are under fire because uh, he may, Aldrich, have gotten that other job where he was able to sexually assault somebody or harass somebody because of the recommendations that the Blackhawk gave him. Man, this sounds like the Catholic Church and priests. And uh, yeah, and like so many other things. Yeah, and so uh, so here's the situation: uh, a lawsuit has been filed. Uh, Susan Loggins, a very prominent uh, personal injury lawyer here in the city of Chicago, has filed the lawsuit, uh, and the Blackhawks have gone into sort of like corporate retreat. Uh, at first, they just sort of denied everything. And then they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire a lawyer from, uh, I forget which law firm, maybe Jenner and Block. Jenner and Block. In that one. Yep. Yeah, Jenner and Block. To yeah, do it Jenner in our own investigation. What a freaking joke that is. Uh, you know, because this guy very doesn't have subpoena power. Very common PR tactic in a crisis. Yeah, very, uh, a, a, a very common PR tactic in a crisis to hire an outside law firm to do a, quote, independent investigation. That's what they decided to do. And by the way, if I... Sorry to interrupt you, Ben, but if I may, that gives them a shield, right? Now they don't have to comment because they can hide behind the independent investigation. So Dan Bowman could say, well, uh, I, I can't comment on it because of the independent investigation. I don't want to influence anything going on here. Yeah, uh, Stan Bowman uh, being uh, the general manager for the Chicago Blackhawks. So, yeah, so this is uh, this is an ongoing uh, a matter for the Blackhawks. And... Uh, I, I don't think how anybody in Chicago here's really knows how to treat this one, uh, Joanna, and I'll get your response to this. Number one, it has to do with the championship Blackhawks team of 2010. And Chicagoans, I'm specifying a, a part of sports culture, but in particular Chicagoans are so devoid of championship teams that they tend to love beyond all rationale any team that brings this city collective joy. Now, I say this, I'm not a hockey fan. I don't, was, I did not jump on any bandwagon when the Blackhawks won. I know they won. I live on the north side of Chicago. I'm surrounded by weird, weird guys wearing cane shirts. <laughs> Okay, you know, getting a little too excited. You're a grown man. You're 50 years old. You're wearing a shirt that says Kane on it. Just saying, all right? Uh, and good luck finding a Northside bar with a Bulls game on in 2010, 13, or 15 when the little Blackhawks were winning everything. Just saying. Uh, yeah. So, but there's that, because the Hawks won so many games, uh, Joanna, I think the Hawks fans, there's a tendency to just not want to deal with this because it's a blemish on their little beloved Blackhawks. And then there's secondly, there's the issue of the fact that it's a man accusing another man. Uh, you got into this a little bit in the pre-show when we were talking about this, uh, of assault. Your thoughts on both of those matters, when it's a beloved sports team and people don't want to hear anything bad about it and man accusing man. Go ahead. Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, Blackhawks fans, we're talking about a team called the Blackhawks. So I don't think that this is uh, 
uh, uh, and I, you know, some of my best friends are Blackhawks fans, but this isn't a, a population that is thinking in, in the most progressive way possible about, or according to modern, perhaps, standards about how we should be operating. Um, the, I think that folks have had a difficult time processing this case because we're not used to male victims of sexual violence speaking out publicly. It is still as stigmatized and as difficult as it is for women to come forward. It's almost impossible for men. Um, and I think that's a standard that we don't talk about enough. Um, it's not that there's no sexual violence happening against men. And in fact, in sports environments, we know that there's a lot of sexual violence, especially, you know, hazing rituals in sports like hockey um, that we just don't discuss enough. And so I'm hopeful that this case will start to force some folks to have conversations about this. Um, and, and to your point about it happening almost exclusively on sports pages, in a way, I'm okay with that, because I think that readers of sports pages are uh, very often the people who need to reckon, reckon with these issues the most and haven't really had to do so in the same way um, that some other spaces have had to do so. Um, the other thing is just, I think the way that the corporation of the Blackhawks is handling this once again is so interesting. So one, the difference between the public relations messaging and the PR strategy and the legal strategy, which is always an interesting dichotomy. Here we have a legal strategy that involves uh, multiple motions to dismiss the entire case. Um, and so we can talk about what does that mean about what they believe is the right thing to do here. Um, and then the public facing strategy, which is essentially to hire, as you alluded to, to hire a general in the block to conduct an outside investigation. And then the public facing statements have been, uh, okay, I'll read you Stan Bowman's statement. The review itself is something that I do plan to participate in, and I'm going to give it my full in, uh, cooperation. As far as where it goes, that's not something that I can comment on. But I do know that we have some experts that we brought in, from my understanding. These are well-respected people in the legal community, and I intend to fully cooperate with them. Okay. Uh, not a whole hell of a lot more that he had to say there. Um, Coach Q, who's no longer with the Blackhawks, but was asked for comment gave a statement that he said, I first learned of these allegations through the media earlier this summer, which is, I would have wanted to make that clear too, if I didn't know at the time. He says, I've contacted the Blackhawks organization to let them know that I will support and participate in the independent review. Out of respect for all those involved, I won't comment further while this matter is before the court. So these are all statements that um, to me imply a lot of concern about legal liability. Um, not wanting to even make like a broad blanket statement of like any any allegations of sexual abuse or assault are obviously extremely concerning to me. You didn't hear that. Now, maybe there are other statements that I missed where that was ground that was covered, but you don't see that here. Um, and probably that was advice that they received, because even to say that would imply that you ac ac accept the premise that this even happened. Yeah, uh, well put. And uh this one will be playing out uh, in at least two different venues. Uh, one will be the matter of the internal investigation uh, by the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, and the other will be the one, uh, the, the lawsuit, uh, and that uh, the uh, former Blackhawk has filed. And, and to your point about this being a very challenging uh, thing for a, a man to reveal, uh, the name of the Blackhawk player, who was allegedly assaulted has not been revealed. He calls himself, what is it, John Doe? Uh, so it's a John Doe lawsuit. Uh, and, we, you know, we talk about um, the Me Too era. And, and Joanna and I started doing these conversations about the creep report when Me Too was first erupting, which is like three years ago, I want to say. Uh, and I, I want to say I'm really sorry to Adam Mendelson. We'll, we'll, uh, and where we began, who was really sick of me too. But uh, the reality that uh, just you know I feel bad for him. I'm but, sure uh, Adam listens to the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he needs to know your NBA takes. I'm sure. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. A regular listener. And he's a Benhead. He's contributed yeah. to the show. Uh, <laughs> you know, Ben, I bet you never book LeBron on this show now. So anyway, Adam, if you, just in case you are listening, I really feel bad. You've just been so burdened by the Me Too stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, women it's, have been coming, going public with these accusations. And they, it, 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 it was to, quite an accomplishment and achievement to overcome, you know, the, the, like the fear and the, uh, the counterpunch that you get. Uh, and and I just don't think uh, men are there yet, you know, um, and, and, and in a large degree. Uh, we just had a, a football player, the first football player, active football player, football player to come out and, and say he was gay. Uh, that, that happened within the last month or so. Um, a player for the, uh, uh, I think it's, you want to say the Oakland Raiders, but it's the, they're now in Las Vegas. And so... It's like we have a long way to go, obviously, uh, with with terms of um, athletes and being gay, openly gay, and then conversely, being able to acknowledge that they were victimized. So uh, this is sort of a, a, a story, a Joanna, that we follow on for a while because I think this one uh, will have uh, wide-ranging implications for sports. Well, uh, yeah, America. I agree. And I, I hope it, particularly in the hockey space, which seems to have some very uh, toxic undercurrents around violence in general, but, but just culturally, um, maybe this can open the door to a reckoning within not just the Blackhawks organization, but the hockey space in general. Yeah. Yeah. We'll avoid that whole one, but you're absolutely correct. It's so <laughs> strange. I mean, it, yeah. the NBA, uh, if you hit a guy in the head, now we're on a sports thing. If you, on a foul, if you hit a guy ahead, they stop play. And the, the referees examine the the tape over and over again to try to ascertain whether that was <laughs> a legitimate foul. In other words, something you couldn't avoid it, uh, or, you, you know, you were doing everything you could to keep from hurting the guy. Or was it a matter where you took that extra step and like you, you were trying to hurt him or uh, you, you, a wind up? You know what I mean? They really, it's right. like a court if of law. Right. If you're, for example, if you're Patrick Beverly and you accidentally or on purpose, unclear, break Devin Booker's nose in three places, <laughs> unclear, you know, it, it goes through an extensive review, certainly. certainly. Yes. Uh, uh, as opposed to Patrick Beverly, who just loses his mind and just pushes Chris Paul uh, from behind. I think he generally doesn't mean, I love Patrick Beverly. I think he generally didn't mean to do any of that, but. Anyway, yes. But the point, point is, in hockey, on the other hand, you could take the stick, start whacking a guy. What is it? Four minutes, five minutes? I don't know. Uh, very strange yeah, sport. Right. And I right. know uh, hockey fans are going to win. As they say, you never know at a fight when a hockey game might break out. That is correct. They do say that because it's true. All right, Joanna Kalonsky, uh, we should do this more often. Good job. Uh, I gave her the hard job of uh, boiling down all these complicated uh, cases because I didn't want to do it. I was feeling lazy at the end of the week. So thank you, Joanna, for doing that. And thanks, thanks for coming for on the ben. show. All right. That's Joanna Klonsky. I'm, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Please.